We read this morning from Acts chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained, explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were. In which we were. They were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered this man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa. And bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God bless our reading of his word. Pray with me today as we consider God's Word. Father, this morning, as always on your day, as we come to your Word, we pray that you would help us to understand, not just in our minds, but in our souls, in the deepest recesses of our beings, that this is your Word, that this is not just words about you, that these are not just words that were written by human initiation that these men who wrote these words were carried along by your Holy Spirit as the very words of God were recorded and that these words are therefore living and active because they have been breathed out by you. And so, Father, would you use your word as the double-edged sword that it is 
to penetrate down into the deepest recesses of our hearts, Father, and to expose all of the vestiges of pride and sin that remain there, and to cause us, Father, by the great kindness that you have showed us in the gospel, to be brought to repentance daily, 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 to hate our sin, to love our God, and to love all that is holy. And so, Father, we pray for grace this morning, and we ask for you to bless us today. And we ask that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations that occur in our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. A.W. Tozer once famously said, when it comes to breathing, physical breathing, he said, exhaling is every bit as necessary to life as inhaling. And so to accept Christ, it is necessary that we reject whatever is contrary to Christ. And of course, the reality that he's talking about there by way of that little illustration is the all-important reality of what God's Word calls repentance. Repentance, it's a, it's a word that means a change of mind, but what it implies necessarily is nothing short of this, that when the mind is truly changed, the whole life invariably follows When we truly trust God and His Word and the Gospel, the very nature of the faith that the Holy Spirit creates within us doesn't just impact our intellect, our understanding. It also impacts our hearts, our will, so that it ends up changing not just the way we think about our sin, not just the way we think about God and His holiness, it ends up changing the way that we live. That's what Tozer's little quote highlights about biblical repentance. It highlights how absolutely necessary repentance is in the Christian life. Sine qua non, without which none. If there is no repentance, there is in fact no life. Repentance is not just important. Repentance is not just a good idea. Repentance is not just something pragmatically that will help you live a more fulfilling life. Repentance is necessary to eternal life, without which there is no eternal life. As exhaling is to breathing, that is necessary for physical life, repentance is necessary for spiritual life. There is this notion, see, that some Christian people have, that repentance from sin is a good thing, but it isn't a necessary thing. Some Scholars even, some theologians even, have actually tried to argue this and maintain that that because we are saved by God's grace alone, apart from works, that repentance from bad works and turning to good works isn't necessary for saved people. It's good, but it's possible, they say, for truly saved Christians to not repent of sin ever in their lives. 
And apart from scholars, there are tons and tons of people who claim to be Christians, who call themselves Christians, who have this same basic attitude in their minds and in their lives towards sin. Well, they're saved by God's grace alone, apart from works. They're forgiven from all of their sins, past, present, future. So, they give themselves permission to go on sinning because they don't believe there's a necessary place for repentance in their lives. This morning, I want you to make no mistake that the Bible has exactly zero room for that kind of thinking or that kind of attitude. Faith without works is dead, James says, and cannot save you. Period. No ambiguity whatsoever. And of course, James, writing under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul wrote under, James knows that good works are not the basis of our being saved. He knows perfectly well that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And he knows, every bit as much as Paul knows, that if faith is real, if it is living faith, if it is the true faith that the Holy Spirit produces in us, then it is a faith that necessarily produces repentance and that leads to a changing life of ongoing repentance and growing holiness, without which we will never see the Lord. So it's in that sense, see, that Tozer meant that to accept Christ, it is necessary that we reject whatever is contrary to Christ. Exhaling is every bit as necessary and essential as inhaling. Turning from sin is every bit as necessary and essential as turning to Christ. And at the bottom line, this is exactly what our passage today in Acts chapter 11 is all about. It's all about... Declaring, on the one hand, that our merciful God grants repentance that leads to eternal life, as it says in verse 18. And it's all about demonstrating that repentance in the lives that God graciously redeems, which we're going to see a wonderful example of here in this text today. Now, the narrative of Acts chapter 11 picks up right where the events of chapter 10 left off. We looked at that chapter last week. We saw how Peter was given that vision of a sheet coming down from heaven filled with every kind of animal. And God telling Peter to rise and kill and eat because those animals that had in the past been designated unclean for the people to eat in the old covenant now had been declared by God to be clean in the new covenant which ultimately signified and meant, as Peter learned, that in the New Covenant, God's covenant purposes were not reserved just for one single earthly nation. But now, in Jesus Christ, they were open to people from every nation on the earth, to whoever would believe on Jesus and call on His name and turn to Him for salvation. There is no distinction now in God's mind between how He's going to treat Israel and how He's going to treat everyone. And Peter got it. Peter understood from the vision that God gave to him 
that he wasn't just free now to eat certain foods that he'd never been able to eat before, that that wasn't the main part of the message. What Peter understood most importantly wasn't just his freedom about food, but that he was actually bound now and compelled now to go and preach the gospel of God's free grace to the nations, to the Gentiles. He was compelled now to turn from that old, fleshly, prideful, sinful mindset and attitude that the Jewish people had fostered for centuries in their hearts that they were better than the Gentiles. That the Gentiles were beneath them. That the Gentiles were more unclean than them. And so, by God's grace, Peter did. He recognized that there is no partiality with God, and so there must not be with Him. There cannot be partiality in the minds and the hearts of God's people. So Peter knew he must now not only stop calling certain foods common or unclean, he must ultimately turn from this old attitude and impulse to call any other person common or unclean. And he must proclaim that Jesus is the Lord of all, the Savior of the world, of people from every tongue and every nation, and not just the Savior of the Jews. So that's what Peter did. He preached the gospel to Cornelius' entire household, and the Holy Spirit fell on all of them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They gave that evidence of the Holy Spirit that the apostles themselves were given in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, proving that the same blessing of God had fallen now on the Gentiles that had fallen on them earlier. And so Peter commanded them all to be baptized in the name of Jesus because of what God had done. And verse 1 now of chapter 11 tells us that word of it got around pretty quickly. Everybody in Judea started to hear that an entire group of Gentiles had received the Word of God, had received the Holy Spirit, had been given faith, had been given life, had been redeemed by the grace of God. Hallelujah, right? Everybody was praising God, all the... Jewish Christians all around Judea, all the believers back in Jerusalem where it all started, they were just beside themselves and rejoicing with excitement that finally, seven years later, a group of Gentiles had become a part of the church of Jesus Christ, right? There was excitement. Not so much. When Peter got back to Jerusalem, verse 2 says the first thing that they did was to criticize him. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men? You associated with uncircumcised people? That's, that's wrong. That's sinful. That's bad. Not only that, but you ate with them. That's worse. You ate Gentile food prepared by Gentile hands. A group of people that Luke calls of the circumcision or the circumcision party brought these charges against Peter. And that group, that that label, those of the circumcision, 
or the circumcision party doesn't just mean a group of people who were themselves circumcised, because obviously they all were, they were Jewish. This isn't a description of what was true about this group of people, it's a description of their concern about what other people do. They were circumcised, they were Jewish Christians, Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus, And then they would insist that if and when a Gentile person ever came to faith in Jesus, that person had to be circumcised physically also. Because all throughout Israel's history, see, their law prescribed that if a Gentile person converted to the worship of the Jews, that person had to be circumcised. And so these people are now carrying that centuries-old expectation over into the New Covenant and expecting that if a Gentile comes to believe in Jesus, then they still would need to be circumcised because they saw themselves as cleaner than the Gentiles. Now see, circumcision was a physical sign that God prescribed in the Old Testament in Genesis 17, for the people of Israel, in order to signify in an outward way, in a physical way, the reality that they were in a covenant relationship with Him, in a unique relationship with Him among the nations of the earth. It was a mark that a man was a part of God's covenant people. It's how God identified the physical offspring of Abraham in the Old Testament. And so someone who didn't have that mark, who wasn't circumcised, wasn't an offspring of Abraham, wasn't a member of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, circumcision also signified and had an inner sort of moral significance to it about the people of God. Because God called His people not just to be blessed differently than the other nations, but to live differently than the other nations around them. And in the ancient world, immorality reigned rampantly among the nations. Sexual immorality. Harems were common. Prostitution was acceptable. Homosexuality was not just tolerated, but often even encouraged in pagan nations. But God called Israel to live differently, to live in accordance with His law, with His moral will, with what He says is right and wrong, with with the way He designed human sexuality to operate within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And they didn't always do it, but God commanded them to do it. The moral standards of the Jews were supposed to be entirely different from the standards of the nations all around them. And see, the the circumcision of every Jewish male was one way of underscoring this aspect of their moral holiness. Circumcision made Israel different from the rest of the world in a way that was was visibly manifested. It it, it marked the fact that they were separate from the nations and holy before God. So, see, there was ingrained in the Jewish mindset this very real sense that 
that uncircumcision indicated moral impurity. And that was rooted in what circumcision was actually prescribed by God to signify. But again, when their sinful pride combined with that, got mixed in with that, the Jewish people started to again see themselves as inherently superior, inherently cleaner, inherently better. And on the other side of that coin, like we saw last week, they began to foster a kind of moral aversion. Not just to the immorality that was going on in the Gentile people, but, but to the people themselves. And that helps us to understand a little bit at least why the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem reacted the way they reacted to the news that Peter had gone and preached the gospel to a group of Gentiles. Because all their history, the Jews had come to look upon the Gentiles with contempt and disgust and disdain. They're dirty. You can't even go in their house. You defile yourself if you eat their food. How could you? So Peter gets back to Jerusalem. First thing he encounters is this criticism. This this opposition from the Gentile party from the Jewish followers of Jesus who still insisted that all ethnic Jews be circumcised and would insist that the followers of Jesus, no matter where they were from, would need to be circumcised, who still harbored this attitude toward anyone who was uncircumcised, that that person was impure, unclean, inherently, more so than they were. So that's why, see, as soon as they see Peter, they do this. They accuse him, and they accuse him essentially of of two things. First, he had been associating with uncircumcised people. He had been in an uncircumcised Gentile person's home. Bad enough, and worse, he had eaten a meal with them. Both of those things were, were strictly forbidden in the Jewish mindset. You remember last week, Peter himself said something to that effect in in chapter 10 when he walked into Cornelius' house. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone from another nation. But God has taught me that I shouldn't call anyone uncommon or unclean. That that thinking is wrong now. Well, these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem hadn't got there yet, hadn't yet come to terms with what God had taught Peter. And so they still thought it was sinful, it was immoral for Peter to even walk into that house, let alone eat eat with them, let alone eat their food. And see, here's the sad thing about this whole episode. Here's the tragedy of it all. It's that these people in Jerusalem were far more concerned about Peter eating a meal with Gentiles than they were concerned with the fact that God the Holy Spirit had poured out grace and faith and salvation on these Gentile people. Well, who cares about their eternal life? What about the fact that you ate pork? That's literally where their hearts and minds are. He stayed in the home of a Jew. He ate unkosher food and that mattered to them way more 
than the fact that a big old group of Gentiles had believed the gospel, had had the Holy Spirit poured out on them, had been delivered from the wrath of God that is to come, had been granted eternal life in heaven. And so, the bottom line is, these people in Jerusalem, their hearts needed to change. They needed to repent of that attitude. They needed to turn from that old fleshly pride that was causing them to worry all about all the wrong things and to miss the glory of how God was working in their midst. And again, there's so many lessons for us here. How easy it is for us to get caught up so much in all the little technicalities, all the little hair-splitting distinctions, making sure we always do everything exactly right. And so we miss the work that God is actually doing. We miss the glory of God. We miss loving one another and blessing one another for the sake of dotting every I and crossing every T. So Peter answers these charges that these people have made against him. He'd stayed in a Gentile's home. In fact, he'd stayed there many days. He'd he'd slept under their roof for many days. And he'd eaten a Gentile's food. What gives, Peter? Peter answers, and it's important how he answers. He doesn't argue with them. Doesn't philosophize with them. He doesn't say, look, I'm Peter. I'm the one that Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Who are you to argue with me? Who are you to question me? No. What he does is to simply tell them exactly what happened. In order, it says, up in Caesarea. Detail by detail. He recounts the whole story. Starting with the vision he had in Joppa. And then the arrival of Cornelius' men and their testimony about the angel who had appeared to Cornelius and and the fact that Peter and a, a group of other Jewish Christian brothers went up to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. And they preached the gospel to Cornelius' household. And the Holy Spirit was, was poured out on them in exactly the same way that he had been poured out on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now, why did Peter take that approach of just retelling the story? Because all of that points away from Peter and points straight to God who did all that, see? In the events that God did, Peter's own mind, Peter's own heart had been changed about how he thought, about how he felt towards Gentiles. Because the whole episode with him and Cornelius doesn't just show what he and Cornelius did and said. It puts the spotlight onto what God did. And that's what's persuasive, see? It's what persuaded Peter. And so he said, boy, if it persuaded me, I'm just, I'm just going to point them to the same God who did the same things. Well, the criticism is, Peter, what were you even doing in a Gentile's home? Pretty simple, right? I was there because God told me to go there. The Lord led. Peter simply followed. How are they going to argue with that? Well, Peter, how could you eat that unclean Gentile food? Simple. God literally 
told me to, commanded me to kill and eat that food. He literally told me that he's made it clean. Well, well, Peter, what were you thinking associating with uncircumcised people? Well, simple. I watched God himself pour out the Holy Spirit on those people while they were uncircumcised. God didn't need them to be circumcised in order to bless them with the Spirit. Peter says, listen guys, none of this, none of it was, was my idea, right? This wasn't, this wasn't Peter's missionary strategy in action in terms of how to reach the Gentiles. All of this was God's sovereign doing. And there were witnesses too, right? These six brothers, verse 12, saw it all. I'm not just making this up. We all saw it. And then in verse 16, Peter invokes Jesus' own words from all the way back in chapter 1. I remembered the word of the Lord and how Jesus said, well, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, I, I watched Jesus do it. I watched him baptize those Gentiles in the Holy Spirit. God did it. Jesus did it. The Holy Spirit did it. The triune deity did it. This is Jesus fulfilling His own word. The risen Christ Himself baptizing uncircumcised Gentiles with the Holy Spirit according to the will of the Father. So the bottom line, the whole point, see, of of Peter recounting this entire episode in painstaking detail is what he says in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them, as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who who was I that I could stand in God's way? And by implication, who are you that you might presume to either? Simple, right? And utterly brilliant. And by God's grace, entirely effective. Verse 18. When they heard these things, the people who were accusing him, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Meaning they stopped leveling charges against Peter. They stopped criticizing him for what he'd done. But that's not even the most significant thing. The most significant thing isn't just that they stopped criticizing him, it's that they started glorifying God. They glorified God and said, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. And see, that in itself is a wonderful demonstration of repentance. Their mind changed, their hearts changed, their attitudes changed changed and so their lives turned from criticizing and nitpicking and focusing on all the little minutiae of the law by which they thought they could make themselves holier than thou. And instead they said, look at the holiness of God and they glorified God in spite of all of their past wicked instincts. It's a wonderful repentance. 
They turned from caring more about self, more about the specifics, more the they turned from the, the sanctimonious, prideful disdain towards the Gentiles to saying, you know what? If God blessed them, that's what matters most. If God glorified Himself in it, that's what matters most. Why would their old attitude was, why would God grant repentance in life to these filthy, uncircumcised Gentiles? And the answer is, well, for the same reason that He granted repentance in life to you, to me, to anyone. Because granting repentance in life to stiff-necked, rebellious, immoral, idolatrous people glorifies God. Puts His power, puts His mercy on glorious display. So the circumcision party there in Jerusalem, these Jewish Christians who put so much importance on all of the outward, all the physical, had now taken the first step towards cultivating a more God-glorifying view of the Gentiles. And they're still going to struggle with this. They're still going to struggle to understand that in the New Covenant physical circumcision doesn't even matter at all anymore. It's still going to be an issue for the church to wrestle with for for years to come. In Acts Acts chapter 15, for example, this question comes back up of whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised after coming to faith in Jesus. That's still a big deal to them all the way over in Acts 15 years later. But here, God had brought them a long way in terms of the way that they regarded the Gentiles. And so they were able to praise God and give glory to God for what he had done in Cornelius' household. Now, with regard to this question of physical circumcision, the rest of the New Testament makes it abundantly clear, especially in a place like Colossians chapter 2, that the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant was like a lot of things were in the Old Covenant, meant to be a pointer to a greater reality in the New Covenant. And when that greater reality arrived, all of the old pointers, all of the old outward signs were made obsolete. And so they were done away with. Right? Just like animal sacrifices. When Jesus came and offered Himself on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice, the one that all of those were pointing to and anticipating, it became clear that all of those old sacrifices not only aren't necessary anymore, but it would be wrong to continue them. We don't need them anymore. right? Same with the temple. Same with the priesthood. Same with a whole host of ceremonial, religious elements of the Old Testament system of worship. Their ultimate purpose was to point to Christ. 
to the greater realities of the new covenant. And now that they've come, now that he's come, and the new covenant is in effect, all of the old shadows are done away with. And so it is with circumcision. The old outward physical circumcision that was of the body, that was, that was done by human hands, was ultimately supposed to point to a greater reality, Paul says in Colossians 2, which he calls the circumcision of Christ. Not, not Jesus' physical circumcision as a Jew, the, the circumcision that Christ performs. Not on your body, but on your heart. See? Not a physical circumcision, an inward circumcision of the heart where sin is cut away by being buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Him to newness of life. By being given a new nature, by being given a new heart that is alive to God instead of dead in sins and trespasses. And the whole point, see, is That's what truly matters. And even though it's going to take these Jewish people a while to fully understand all the details, the church in Acts was starting to grasp that in the New Covenant, God is doing something marvelous and miraculous. Through faith in Jesus, He is making people to be new creations. He is crucifying people spiritually with Jesus and putting that old nature that says, I do what I want to do. I'm governed by my desires. I decide whether something's beneficial for me or not. Crucifies that spiritually and raises people to newness of life, gives them whole new natures that says, I will do what Jesus wants no matter the cost. See, the big problem that the Gentiles had wasn't that they were physically uncircumcised. It was that in their hearts they were unclean before God. That's what the, that's what the Jewish Christians in the early church needed to get. It's all about the inside. And when they started to get that, when they started to appreciate that, then they started to appreciate this far more important reality of the inside. It ma- what, what matters is that God made them new creations far more than whether or not they need to be circumcised physically. God, God circumcised their hearts. That's what matters. God has removed their sins from them. They were made alive to God in the inner man through faith in Jesus. That's what matters. And ultimately, that is what the phrase in verse 18 means, the repentance that leads to life. That's what God does for His people. He doesn't just say you're forgiven and given an e-ticket to heaven. He says you're given a new nature. You're made a new creation. You're given a repentance, a turning, a changing of mind and heart and attitude that turns away from the sin that you once desired so much and turns towards God, that abandons one and embraces the other. This phrase, repentance that leads to life, doesn't mean that when someone makes a choice 
of their own volition, of their own ability to stop doing bad things and start cleaning up their act, then on the basis of their choice, on the basis of whatever good things they do, they'll be given eternal life like a, like a reward or like a wage that's earned. That's not, what, that's not what it means by saying repentance that leads to life. That's not how salvation works ever, right? That's not how eternal life is obtained ever. The only thing that we ever earn by doing anything that we ever do, the only reward that we ever are given for what we do is the reward of death. Everlasting condemnation. The wages of sin is death. That's what you earn. That's the only thing we can ever earn. The wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23. But what's the very next phrase in the very same verse? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is never earned by anything that we can do. It is always a gift. It is always a free gift, an undeserved gift, a free, undeserved gift of pure mercy and grace given by God who is love. Unconditional, self-sacrificing love. So the phrase, repentance that leads to life, doesn't mean repentance that earns life as its wage, or repentance that merits life by its virtue. It just means... The repentance which, it just means the repentance without which there cannot be and will not be eternal life. In the same way that James means that apart from good works there can't truly be salvation. Not that good works merit salvation. Not that salvation comes on the basis of good works. Nope, it comes through faith alone. And where faith is true, Where faith is real, it necessarily produces good works as a result. And in that sense, the grace of God alone, through faith in Jesus alone, causing a person to be born again, regenerated, made a new creation, who's growing in good works and sanctification and holiness, in that sense, the good works of growing sanctification in the life of the new creation are leading toward eternal life and glory. Without them, in other words, without any growing sanctification, without any holiness and the good works that come from faith, there won't be any eternal life because there's not any actual new life now. And so Hebrews, right, exhorts us to pursue the holiness without which no one will see God. And James says, well, what good is it if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? That faith can't save him. It's not real faith. It's not real life. Faith by itself, James says, if it does not have works, is dead and cannot save you. Faith apart from works is dead. And in the same way, eternal life apart from repentance is non-existent, is a contradiction in terms, is impossible. No eternal life apart from repentance. 
Notice that these Jewish Christians here in verse 18 acknowledged that God had granted to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house the repentance that leads to life. So repentance, right? Turning away from immorality and idolatry and sinful, fleshly, worldly, ungodliness and turning to holiness in life is necessary to eternal life, not as the way that we get it or or the basis of God giving it, but as a necessary reality without which there is not and cannot and will not ever be eternal life. And that necessary reality of repentance is itself a gift of God. Is itself granted by Him. And is necessary as a fundamental component of the life that He grants through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one could boast. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. All of grace, all through faith, none of our own doing, not as a result of works. And never forget verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if we're not, and if they're not there, then we can't say we've been saved by grace through faith. The good works are necessary. The good works are not optional. Repentance is not optional. As Matthew Henry says, wherever God designs to give life, He necessarily gives repentance. On the one hand, good works are not the way that you get saved. On the other hand, they are necessarily the way in which saved people live. On the one hand, repentance is not the way that you gain eternal life in glory. And, on the other hand, repentance is necessarily the way, the pathway, that eventually leads to eternal life and glory. Now, Peter himself is going to teach this very thing when he writes the book of 2 Peter. Listen, this is 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 3, Peter says that God has granted to us by His divine power all things that pertain to eternal life and godliness. They go necessarily together. There can't be one without the other. There can't be eternal life apart from godliness and repentance which God also grants to those whom He saves. And so Peter, who knows full well that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from good works, he says in the next verse, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, that God has granted to us His precious and very great promises. We don't earn any of it. It's not based on what we do. It's all based on God's promises. And he says those promises of God cause us to become partakers of a divine nature. 
Now, he doesn't mean like we become omnipotent or omniscient or immutable uh, uh, or, or characterized by any of the things that characterize God uniquely as God. No, he means you're given a new nature that is created by God in the image of his holiness and in the image of his purity. That's fundamental to what it means to be saved, to be given this new nature. So then Peter says that by being given new living godly natures, we have been able, made able to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. By the power of God's promises, we've been given these new natures so that we can start living in growing holiness and repentance and stop living in sin. So, because all of this is true, Peter says, we must make every effort to live in the power and the reality of these new natures that God's power has forged in us. Supplement your faith with good works, he says. And he lists virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. This is what you are now. This is how you must live now. And he says in verse 8, 2 Peter 1, If these qualities are yours and are increasing. Because it doesn't all happen immediately, right? It doesn't all happen all at once, right? The life of the new creation is a life of, a life of, of growth. It's a life of progress. Lifelong increase in this holiness and godliness. And Peter says that if that's true, that the new nature is increasing in these things, then our lives in this world right now will be effective, will be fruitful. And as they are, we will make our calling and election, our salvation, we'll make it sure. Because the increasing repentance from sin and holiness of life, demonstrating that the new covenant, or the new creation rather, is real and genuine, will, will, will show us and testify to us that the faith through which we are saved is alive and not dead. And then Peter says this, finally, verse 10, verse 11, that as we continue to increase in practicing these qualities of repentance and holiness and godliness in this way, there will be provided for us an entrance to the eternal kingdom of heaven. Not that you do good things and that's going to earn you the eternal kingdom of heaven. No, just that God creates new life in you and where it's real, you will increase in godliness. And as you do, you'll walk along the pathway of growing holiness and that pathway leads to glory. That's what repentance that leads to life means. As someone who has been forgiven and justified freely, as someone who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as the new creation who you are in Christ Jesus, as someone who has been granted repentance, as someone who has been given a new nature by the divine power of God, as someone who has been saved from hell by God, as someone who is now God's workmanship, a regenerated new creation in Him, now walk in the good works that He prepared for you beforehand to walk in. And as you do that, you'll be walking along the way 
that leads to everlasting glory. And along that way, you're going to trip and you're going to fall and you're going to stumble. You're not going to be perfect until you get there. And so whenever you trip and whenever you fall and whenever you fail along the way, whenever you blow it along the way, whenever you yield to temptation along the way, you must hear the voice of Jesus say, it is for this sin that I died. Now get up and keep walking along the way. For I have saved you, I have forgiven you, I have given you a new nature, I have given you all the grace that you need to walk along the way, to run the race with endurance and to finish it in glory. Hear the voice of Jesus say what Jesus said to that woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And by His kindness... When you hear him say, I forgive you, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Repent daily and keep walking along the way that leads to eternal glory. Pray for him the strength to do it, to run with endurance, to grow, to mortify, to put to death every single day the sin for which he died. And that's the way you walk along the way that leads to glory. In Acts chapter 11, the testimony of God's great mercy on the Gentiles in granting them repentance and life led to repentance in the hearts of the Christians back in Jerusalem. And so they glorified God. The display of His glorious mercy led them to repentance. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's proclamation of the gospel, the good news of God's glorious mercy, led Cornelius' household to the repentance that leads to life. It's his kindness that leads to repentance, Paul says in Romans 2.4. And it must keep leading to repentance every single day of our lives. Because true repentance starts small, like a seed But it starts, and it grows, and sometimes it stumbles, and then it hears the voice of the kind Savior say, I don't condemn you, and so it keeps growing. It fixes its eyes on Jesus, it gets up and keeps running, it keeps enduring, it keeps persevering, it keeps battling sinful desire and temptation, it keeps mortifying sinful attitudes and desires that remain in us. Until one day as it's doing that, the body eventually dies and the next word you hear your Savior say are, enter into the joy of my rest. Because the strength of God's great kindness granted and led to a lifelong, ongoing, growing, increasing, enduring repentance that leads to eternal life. That's how it works. The unfathomable love of Jesus Christ responds to Jesus Christ by living faith in a daily resolve to love Him who has loved us by walking in the good works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in, by increasing in obedience to Him and growing daily stronger and stronger in the virtues that glorify Him, that that please Him, and that that kind of a life then leads step by step, day by day, 
towards the entrance to the eternal kingdom of heaven. Now, to close, Robert Murray McShane said, the sunshine is always warmer and sweeter after we've been in the shade. Isn't that true? You're over there shivering in the shade and it's cold. You go and stand in that sun. It feels so good. He says, and so you will find Jesus to be when you return to Him after stumbling. That sweetness, that warmth, that love of the Savior who says, I don't condemn you, is what fuels our love for Him and our growth in His grace. Today, every single one of us can look at our lives and and should and say, there's plenty of sin that I haven't been killing. There's plenty that I need to be repenting of. And then when we're there, we, we feel the coldness of that shade that McShane's talking about. And the point is, come out of the coldness. Come out of the guilt. Come out of the shame. And bask in the warmth of the perfect, unchanging love of God in Jesus Christ. I love what Thomas Goodwin said. He said that Jesus' love for you now, this is so good, Jesus' love for you now, today, May 2nd, 2021, His love for you today now, that He's been glorified in heaven and that you've been sinning all your life, His love for you now is the same as it was when He was here on this earth 2,000 years ago dying for you on the cross. It hasn't changed. It hasn't been diminished one little bit. And so, Goodwin says, because that's true, by the divine power of His love, we must now strive and we must now in our lives here on earth endeavor to love Him, to have a heart for Him here that is the same as we hope to have for Him there in eternal life, in glory, in heaven. That's what you strive for, to love Him more. Endeavor for that every day. Fix your eyes on Him, on His perfect, unchanging love, and grow every single day in your love for Him who so perfectly loves you. Eyes on Jesus. Mind and heart fixed on the precious and very great promises of God that are all yes in Jesus. Here's how we sing it, and we're going to in a minute. Soul, know your full salvation and rise over sin and fear and care. Find joy in every station, something still to do and bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think what Jesus did. He died to win thee. 
child of heaven, can you repine? In other words, in this world, don't abide in the cold and the shade of sin and shame. Bask in the sweet warmth of the love of Christ. Don't repine, don't wallow, don't pine away in the misery of guilt and shame and fear. Know your full salvation and rise over sin. Find joy in every circumstance that your Heavenly Father lovingly ordains. Find strength in Him to grow and to obey and to endure. Think on the Holy Spirit who's been poured out on you, who dwells in you. Think about the smiling face of the Heavenly Father who always and unfailingly loves you. Think on all that Jesus did to forgive you, to justify you, to recreate you, to love you, to win you, and be filled with the divine power of God to keep on running towards the goal, to keep growing, to keep striving. Amen? Let's pray together for that strength today. And then let's sing praises to our great God. Our Father, how much we love you and yet how much we recognize that our love for you is not what it ought to be and it certainly does not match the great love with which you have loved us. And so, Father, we turn away from us and we turn to you and we look upon your smiling face and we step out into the the blazing light and warmth and heat of Christ's love for us and we give you praise that in spite of us, in spite of all our sin, you have loved us. And that your patience and that your kindness are with us every single day. And that you give us all the grace that we need to run this race with endurance and to fight this fight, to battle sin, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to put on the righteousness of Christ and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we come to you today recognizing our need of this grace and recognizing the fullness and the abundance and the overflow with which you have poured it out. Father, give us grace. Help us to sing your praises with whole hearts and whole lives and to step out into the sun and say, I will live for Jesus. I will live for His glory. I will trust Him. I will serve Him. I will slay all of the dragons of sin in my life by His strength. Father, give us this grace and receive our praises to You. And help them to be worthy of the, of the glory, Father, with which you have loved us. And so, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Turn to page 5. And again, stand and let's sing loudly to our God with full hearts and full voices. Jesus, I my cross have taken. <laughs>